<laughs> All right, we're in Genesis chapter 41. Joseph, as I was saying, uh, is, has been in prison for some time. He uh, earned the trust. I don't think he deliberately sought it just because of his own character, his own integrity. Uh, the, the jailer uh, saw God's presence in his life, saw the integrity of this young man and the character, and he worked his way up, and uh, he puts the whole prison under, under Joseph's, um, uh, what's the word I want, under his uh, as leadership. Yeah, he's overseer of the prison. He's still a prisoner, and I don't see anywhere that he's getting any special uh, benefits from this um, other than fulfillment and doing it. I don't, I don't see that they're treating him, you know, giving him more posh treatment. Uh, maybe, we're not told. But nevertheless, uh, remember the butler and the baker? They, uh, uh, the butler and, not the baker, uh, the butler and the, but, uh, the baker, yeah. I, not, I keep saying candlestick maker, and I get that all mixed up. Um, and uh, they have their dreams. Joseph interprets their dreams for them. The dreams come uh, uh, the, uh, his interpretation is carried out to the T exactly as God told him uh, what those dreams meant. Uh, the baker is, uh, is uh, killed. Um, uh, Pharaoh executes him and the butler is restored back. And Joseph says to the butler when he, he heads out, he says, listen, don't forget me down here. I did nothing wrong. I, uh, it's not right that I'm here. Closest thing you find to complaining on Joseph's part in his whole life. And of course, the butler does what? Forgets. Two years go by. And uh, we started this last week. And lo and behold, Pharaoh has a dream. He has two dreams. And, um, and he's concerned about that. And that's where we left off. So I want to pick up reading verse number nine. So we have the back story there a little bit. Uh, notice verse 9. Then spake the chief butler unto Pharaoh, saying, I do remember my faults this day. Pharaoh was wroth with his servants and put me in the ward and in the captain of the guard's house, both me and the chief baker. And we dreamed a dream in one night, I and he. We dreamed each man according to the interpretation of his dream. And this is the, ba this is the butler telling Pharaoh this. Communicating this to Pharaoh. And there, was one, and there was there with us a young man, a Hebrew, a servant to the captain of the guard, and we told him. And he interpreted to us our dreams to each man according to his dream he did interpret. And it came to pass as he interpreted to us, so it was. Me he restored to mine office, and him he hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. Pharaoh hears this report from the butler. And he sent and called Joseph. And they brought him hastily out of the dungeon. And he shaved himself changed and changed his raiment and came in unto Pharaoh. Now I'm going to read an extended portion here. We're not going to talk about all of it. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I have dreamed a dream and there was none that can interpret it. Remember back... Uh, in verse number 8, he called all the magicians and the wise men. Nobody could figure out what this meant. Pharaoh is convinced that this dream is a message from some deity. I'm not convinced he's 
he, at this point, that he knows it's from God. Maybe one of his false gods there worshiping, but he knows this is a message. Nobody can interpret what it is. So he calls Joseph in, and uh, he tells him, I dreamed a dream, verse 15, there was none that can interpret it. I have heard say of thee that thou canst understand a dream to interpret it. He says, Joseph, I've heard you can interpret dreams. You can understand what these mean. Notice Joseph's answer. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, very first thing, off the bat, he says, it is not in me. He says, I need to correct something here. Before we go on, you need to understand something. It's not me interpreting your dream. We'll, we'll note that. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, In my dream, behold, I stood upon a bank of a river. And he goes on and recounts this dream. And behold, there came up out of the river seven kine, cows, cattle, fat-fleshed and well-favored. Uh, boy, they're big, they're good-looking cows. And, uh, and they fed in a meadow. And behold, seven other kind came up after them, poor and very ill-favored. That phrase, ill-favored, has the idea of ugly Difficult to look at, nasty looking, ill-favored, and lean flesh, skin and bones, such as I never saw in all the land of Egypt for badness. And the lean and the ill-favored kind did eat up the first seven fat kind. And when they had eaten them up, it could not be known that they had eaten them up, but they were still ill-favored as at the beginning. So I awoke. And I saw in my dream, and behold, seven ears came up in one stalk, full and good. Let me just say this here. When he's talking about ears, what, we think of what? We think of corn ears. This is probably a grain, some sort of wheat-type grain, rather than what we're used to, uh, corn like uh, here we got from the Indians. They, they, at that point, they didn't have that. I don't believe they had that in Egypt. So he's looking at some sort of wheat or oat-type thing. Uh, but that's what he's talking about. And uh, seven ears came up in one stalk, full and good. And behold, seven ears withered, thin, and blasted with the east wind sprung up after them. And the thin ears devoured the seven good ears. And I told this unto the magicians, but there was none that could declare it to me. And Pharaoh knows this means something. And it's, he's frustrated. He's troubled about this. He presses it and presses it. I need to know what these dreams mean. Verse 25, and Joseph said unto Pharaoh, the dream of Pharaoh is one. God has showed Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good kind are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dream is one. The two dreams are one message. And the seven thin and ill-favored kind that came up after them are seven years. The seven empty ears blasted with the east wind shall be seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have. Uh, this is the thing which I have spoken unto Pharaoh. What God is about to do, He showeth unto Pharaoh. Now, I don't know, but you know, I can see Pharaoh saying, "I knew there was something to this. I knew this meant something." Behold, there, verse twenty-nine. There come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. And there shall arise after them seven years of famine. And all the plenty shall be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine shall consume the land. 
And the plenty shall not be known in the land by reason of that famine following, for it shall be very grievous. And for that the dream was double unto Pharaoh twice, it is because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. So we're looking at Pharaoh's two dreams. Let's pray and ask the Lord to uh, teach us something from this. Father, we come this evening, we're grateful for the Bible and these events that you've recorded and preserved for us by inspiration. Lord, we know there's truth here, as our memory verse said, all scriptures, profitable doctrine, reproof for correction, instruction, righteousness. So I pray that you would teach us, your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds and be able to receive from this passage what it is that will help us in our faith, in our witness, our Christian life, our walk with you. So, uh, as always, I ask, Lord, you fill me with your spirit. You speak through me as I yield my will and my body anew to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Most people, I got thinking about Joseph, I kind of backed up and just looked overall at Joseph. <clears throat> I think most people live quiet, unnoticed lives. Just kind of go through life. Anybody ever uh, have this feeling? You know, I just, want, I just want all this stuff going on out in the world, just leave me alone. Anybody? That's pretty much a conservative mindset. Uh, just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. I think a lot of the reason the garbage going on in our society, our country, is because we've said, just leave me alone. You know, sometimes you need to speak up. But your average person uh, just lives quiet, unnoticed lives. None of us probably here ever get parades given in our honor. I doubt very few, if any of us, will ever have monuments and statues made in our honor. We're just folks living our lives. However, that does not mean, just, just because we don't have statues made and streets named after us and parades held in honor, just because we don't get any of that, it doesn't mean that our lives have no significance. It doesn't mean that we don't have any influence. I want to suggest that there are scores of people, every person represented here under the sound of my voice, there are scores of people uh, that are impacted by the small things you and I say and do on a daily basis. We do have influence. We do have an impact. We, uh, our lives are significant in the role that we have on the however many years God gives us here on this planet. Every one of us have a purpose. Every one of us, God has a plan for our life. And it may not be to be honored by man and have the praises of man. It may just be a seemingly uneventful life, just quiet, maybe unnoticed a whole lot by the world, but we have an impact. What did Jesus say? Ye are the what of the earth? Salt of the earth. Small is just a small, uh, salt is just a small, simple little item. But brother, it makes a difference, doesn't it? Just a little bit of salt, just a pinch of salt, makes a world of difference in a dish. And just ordinary people like you and I that love God, are committed to live for Him, and uh, serve Him, be filled with His Spirit, you and I, I'm convinced, have more of an influence on this world and in people's lives than we realize. We think unless our names are in lights and unless we're out, uh, you know, some spectacular thing, I I'm really, I'm, I'm really don't have much significance. No, no, no. Sometimes just having a smile on your face 
makes a world of difference in someone's life. I want to challenge you. When you're at the market, you go to Walmart or somewhere, you walk around, pay attention to people's countenance. Most of them are tense, they look. Most of them are, and I don't know that they're deliberately, that's, that's natural. Uh, try this experiment. Put a big smile on your face and just walk up and down the aisles and see how people respond to you. You know what I found? 99% of the time, they smile back. A little act puts a smile on someone else's face. Just a little salt, just a little something. Uh, a little helping hand. Somebody drops something, reach down and pick it up, say, here you go. Hold a door. I was, um, where was I at today? Uh, somebody was coming, it was a lady, uh, had a baby in her arm, had two little ones in a sack. They were walking in, I can't remember where it was. And um, I don't remember where I was an hour ago, but... Um, Anyway, they're walking up, and I just put a big smile, open the door, there you go, and she just thanked me. She was so grateful. Just little stuff like that make a difference. Make a difference. Giving out a gospel tract could totally change a person's life. A word of prayer. Let me, let me challenge you on this, and I think you'll see where I'm going with this in a minute. But let me challenge you with this. When, when you're with someone, you know, you don't, have to, you don't have to be a preacher to have a word of prayer with somebody. You know, somebody, you're talking to them, maybe they're having a tough time, whatever. Uh, let me challenge you. Just do something like this. Just say, hey, let's have a quick word of prayer. Let me just pray with you. And if appropriate, grab their hand. Lord, help them, bless them. Right there on the spot. I'm telling you, you could change a life. Just that right there. Um, inviting someone to a church meeting, a wild game dinner, revival meeting, special Sunday. That could have a profound impact on someone's life. That could change a person's life. Some of these little things. Now I said all that to say this. Up to this point, Joseph is relatively unknown. Now we know him. We're studying him. He's been in Scripture. But at that moment, at that time, think about his world. He's in a prison for years. Perhaps upwards of 11, some suggest 14 years. He's been in a cell. Now he's had some interactions with fellow cellmates and he's given some responsibilities. They're in the prison. But as far as the world is concerned, he's living in a very small world. Would you agree with me? Relatively unnoticed. Um, his family has forsaken him. His brothers at least. Dad thinks he's gone. Mom thinks he's gone. Um... So there's no family he's interacting with. Um, he's been forgotten in a prison, or forgotten by the world, and friendless in a prison. So he's fairly insignificant in the world's eyes at this point. Nobody's building statutes in his name. But he continually, well, this is what stands out in my mind. He continually and consistently does what is right. He just does what's right. Not for fanfare, not because he's getting a lot of attention. In fact, it dawned on me a week, couple weeks ago. It dawned on me. God, not one time, and I don't, I don't know if I mentioned this before or not, but not one time does God refer to himself, God refer to himself as the God of Joseph. He refers to himself as the God of 
Abraham, did anybody, anybody ever read that in the Bible? I'm the God of Abraham. He refers to himself as the God of Isaac and refers to himself as the God of Jacob, of all people. But not one time can I find where God refers to himself as the God of Joseph. Um, now that is shocking to me to an extent because Joseph's integrity is a hundred times greater than the integrity of his daddy. Now, there's a lot of lessons, and God's saying, I'm, I'm not ashamed to be the God of Jacob. If he's not ashamed to be the God of Jacob, uh, maybe he's not ashamed to be the God of Dennis. You know what I'm saying? But not one time does, by, does God refer to himself as the God of Joseph. I'm telling you, I would be proud to be associated with Joseph. But not one time. Nowhere does the Bible re God refer to Joseph as Joseph, my servant. I don't think. Now, he refers to Moses, my servant, David, my servant, Paul, the servant of God. But no reference, as far as I can tell, in the Bible, Joseph, my servant. I may have overlooked some, but I, I don't know. Go to Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith. Joseph's not there. How many people think that's kind of strange? Of all these people, Joseph, this immaculate integrity, this impeccable character and yet relatively unknown. And I think something we can take away from that is we ought to do right whether we get attention for it or not. We ought to work hard. Joseph got no attention. He was unknown, a prisoner, but he worked hard. One thing you notice about Joseph, he worked hard. And we ought to work hard whether we get employee of the month or not. We ought to do right and work hard. You say, I never get the free parking spot for a month for being an employee of the month. You still ought to do right. You still ought to work hard. Um, he gets little or, no, little or no attention. He does right. He works hard. He tells the truth. And everybody, who's, everybody whose life interacts with Joseph, they walk away better off, for the most part, few exceptions, they walk away better off than they were before they met him. He's a blessing. He's a help. Joseph is better off. Potiphar's, or, 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 I meant Potiphar, he's better off. His business, his home, his, everything he's working is way better because of Joseph's influence. Joseph's in prison, but Potiphar, man, he made out like a bandit on this servant. Even Potiphar's wife, in spite of her uh, false accusations, she's living in nicer conditions than she was before Joseph showed up. The prisoners are better off under Joseph's leadership and his oversight there. But yet he's relatively unknown. And yet he still does right. He did right, worked hard, told the truth, walked to God, and he rose to the top. In thinking that through and writing it out, I thought about years ago, I had an older preacher tell me shortly after I became pastor and I was just, just, uh, just trying to get as much wisdom from older preachers as I could. I'd ask him questions, call him up, go to meetings and stuff. And I had an older preacher tell me one time, he says, don't hire someone or don't put someone in a position of the church that desperately wants to be hired or desperately wants that position. He says that'll, that'll, that doesn't work out. If they're just wanting a position, they're wanting a title, 
They're wanting some place that they can have. He says, that's not who you want. He says, who you want to put in positions is somebody that's working hard, they're doing right, they're happy, they're content, and God's blessing them doing what they're doing. And he says, you might ask them, hey, I'd like for you to step up to this, and they might resist it. He said, that's the one you want in the position. Because they have in some character, they have integrity, they're not seeking recognition, they're not seeking a title, they're not seeking a, a, a position. They just want to serve. You follow what I'm saying? I thought that was good advice. I see that in Joseph. I can't find anywhere where Joseph sought any of these positions. And when he's under Potiphar's and as his servant, I don't see anywhere, it doesn't even remotely suggest that Joseph says, I'm going to run this household one of these days. No, he just did right, worked hard, walked with God, told the truth, and he rose to the top. And he's in prison unjustly. And he goes, ah, I'm going to be the head. I'm going to be uh, right under the warden of this prison. I want that position. No, don't see any of that. He just told the truth, worked hard, walked with God. God was with him, and he rose to the top. And so now we hear it, see it, we see it again. He's just in prison. We're just, all we're told is two years went by. Nothing's happening other than Joseph isn't changing. Doing right, walking with God, integrity. And now God opens the door for him. God has his own ways, God has his own time, and he has his own places that he's prepared for his people, for every one of us. God has a time for us to do what we're going to do. God has a place for us. He has a way of getting us there. And it's different for all of us. No one else in the Bible followed the same route to the place God had for them that Joseph followed. It was all different, every one of them. They're all unique path, a unique preparation, unique experiences that they went through to get to the place where God intended for them to be. So don't try and copy other people. Don't try and imitate other people. Don't compare yourself to other people. Now learn from other people, right? Amen? Learn from others. Let, them, let, let, the, let the godly people, the people of integrity, and that, let them influence us. But don't try and imitate anybody because God has an, his own way for your life and my life, his own plan, his own purposes, his own timing for your life and my life. Some, I'm, I'm looking at it from a position of a pastor, and you, it applies to any role. And some... You know, I was 33 when I come here. I got some preacher friends. They were 21 years old, took their first church. You know, others, uh, Brother Salyer was with us. He was 40 when God called him to go to the Philippines. Now, he said that was old. I think that's kind of young, to be honest with you, 40. But God has his own ways, his own timing, his own places and plans and, and processes he uses to get us where he wants us to be. Now it's Joseph's time. We're at the point here. We are right at the precipice. We are stepping through the door where Joseph is entering into the position that God for 14 plus years, uh, his whole life really, has been preparing him for. He's about to fulfill the role that all this was leading up to. And it begins with Pharaoh's two dreams is what opens this final door. I want us to notice quickly, I've taken 
sections of what we just read, this lengthy port, part, and I broke it down to three thoughts. My first thought is this, number one, I want us to notice the butler's recollection. In verse number 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, the butler's recollection. Notice uh, it says, Then spake the chief butler unto Pharaoh, saying, I do remember my faults this day. <clears throat> I think there was a bit of crises in Pharaoh's court. He had these dreams. Pharaoh is absolutely convinced in his heart and soul that these dreams mean something. It wasn't just too many uh, sardines on his pizza the night before. Not sardines. Where are the little fish? Anchovies. It wasn't too many anchovies on his pizza. He says, this is, there's something to this. The magicians come, do all their magic. We have no idea. The wise men come, they analyze it and, and scrutinize it. They say, uh, we don't know what it means. Maybe this, uh, we don't know. And there's a bit of a crisis here. There's <clears throat> uh, maybe a little bit of panic going on inside Pharaoh's court. We've got to find this out. Pharaoh's getting agitated. Remember it said before, he was troubled. And in the midst of this panic, this crisis, maybe there's a bit of chaos going on. Everybody's in an uproar. We've got to figure this out. All of a sudden... The butler says, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. He says, I remember something. He remembered, I put this down, the, the butler's recollection. Number one, he remembered his promise. He, uh, he says, I do remember my faults this day. I think it's interesting, this butler, whatever character a guy he was, we don't know. But he apparently accepts his responsibility for his neglect. He doesn't blame anybody else. He doesn't blame the circumstance. Wow, I was so busy. And oh, good night. I got out and they had a Pharaoh's birthday party. I had that. And next thing you know, I'm back with my family. And we got this going on and that going on. And we got a big day there and a special day here. And all. He didn't say any of that. He goes, oh, I messed up. He took responsibility for his, his neglect, his failure here. I tell you, that's a good thing when somebody learns to take responsibility for their own faults. Do you ever say this? Oh, man, I'm sorry. That was my bad. Anybody ever? My bad. Oh, I messed up. That's what he says. It was me. And so he accepts responsibility for his own, own neglect. In fact, he gives it a serious. He says that word fault there, I thought was interesting, is translated, same word, is translated other places in our Bible 29 times for the word sin. So he's not saying, oh, I just made a mistake here. He says, no, I did wrong. It's also a word that was used to describe a crime. What I did was criminal. I mean, he, he understands the severity. This guy spent two years in prison because I forgot. And so he accepts responsibility. He remembers his promise he made. There's no excuses. There's no blame. And that's a good thing. Now, I got looking at that and got thinking, I don't know, his motivation, we're not told what it was, but I would kind of guess that maybe his motivation might have been more to pander to Pharaoh, because Pharaoh's in a tizzy. He's worked up. I need to know what this uh, dream, I need to know what these dreams mean. I know there's something, and nobody can do anything. And all of a sudden, the, the butler thinks, oh, good night, I forgot. And he's like, oh, this might put me in good with Pharaoh. Pharaoh, 
I know a guy that can interpret dreams. Maybe he was more concerned about pandering to Pharaoh uh, than doing right by Joseph. I don't know. He did right by accepting responsibility for it. But what his motivations were, I know that's probably typical in the corporate world, dog-eat-dog, right? I don't know, I can weasel in there with the top guy and get in good with him. Maybe that'll open another door for me. The political world, we know that works that way. And so I don't know what his motives were. So first of all, he remembers his promise. Then verse 10 through 13, he rehearses his experience. And he doesn't try, it's interesting, he doesn't try and explain how Joseph interpreted this dream, how he did that. Now Joseph told him it was God at the time. But the butler doesn't say, yeah, he, uh, he talked to his God and his God told him. He just said, listen, I'll just tell you what I experienced. I don't, he, you know, he doesn't say, oh, this is how he did it, this is why, this is all that. He just says, this is all I know. That I had a dream. I didn't know what it meant. This guy came and told me what it meant. And it, exact, it happened out exactly the way he told me it would be. All he's giving is a personal testimony. Right? He's telling what he knows. Just telling what he knows. And by the way, that's not bad to apply to soul winning. People say to me sometimes, preacher, you know, I'd like to witness to people. I'd like to tell people how to get saved, but I don't know what to say. Anybody ever been there? You know what's a powerful tool in soul winning, winning others Christ? Just tell people what Christ did for you. Just tell them what you know. Remember the blind guy and all the Pharisees jumped over him? How did he make your eyes see? Who is this guy? And they're all mad at him because the Lord did it on a, a Sabbath day. And uh, he says, I don't know, but all I know, I was blind, but now I see. I tell you, that's a tremendous way to witness. I don't know. I just know I was a sinner on my way to hell. I trust Christ. He forgave me, and I have assurance I'm going to heaven now. He cleaned my life up. He changed my life. He helped my home. That's all I know. That's, if that's all you know, that's powerful testimony. And so the butler just comes and says, oh, let me tell you what happened to me, Pharaoh. I messed up, man. I, uh, I'm, I, I should have remembered this a long time ago. My bad. I take responsibility. It's serious. But let me tell you what I know, Pharaoh. This guy, this guy had the goods. He came through. So we have the butler's recollection. Then verse 14, I notice Joseph's summons to Pharaoh. Look at verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent, he heard what the butler had to say. Apparently he trusted this butler pretty well, or he was desperate. And he sent, Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon and he shaved himself and changed his raiment and came in unto Pharaoh. So this summons, Joseph is summonsed to Pharaoh. He's called up to Pharaoh. And I notice that this is a pretty urgent summons. It says they uh, sent and called Joseph and they brought him hastily. The word hastily, again, I looked it up. It's translated other places to run 75 times in the Bible. It's, it's used uh, to run. So there I see this. Uh, uh, Pharaoh's there in his court. 
the butler's, whatever the setting may be, the butler's telling him, recounting what happened to him, all his assistants and everybody, his associates are around there. The place is silent. Everybody's glued on what this butler's telling. Here's an answer to our crisis. Here's a solution to Pharaoh's uh, uh, problem of not knowing what this is. And as soon as he finishes, he says, you go get him now. And I just see that whole court clearing out, scrambling, people running down the halls, out across the town or wherever, uh, uh, over to the prison. And uh, they come busting down in that prison. They said, Joseph, let's go now! So it's a hasty summons. There's definitely panic in the palace. They are running down after him. Two years of disappointment, two years of mundane, every day the same as the day before, discouragement, maybe borderline hopeless, and all of a sudden, and we talked about this last week, all of a sudden, the prison doors go slamming open and all these guys come barging in there. What? In a moment, everything changes. I thought of this. When it, have any, anybody here ever been in a situation where it seemed like everything is going wrong? Yeah. You're like, yeah, every day. Seems like everything's going on. Let me, let me give this suggestion and a basis on Joseph's experience. When it seems like everything is going wrong and it almost seems hopeless, start looking for God to do something. So, oh, this is how I'm stuck here. Everybody's forgot me. My whole life is, man, it's just, that's a good time to start saying, you know, I'm going to start watching for God to do something. And you study your Bible. When you find God's people in dire straits, you find God's people in bad, between a rock and a hard place, every time God shows up and does something. Now, it might not be spectacular, and it might not be what they anticipated, but when everything's going wrong and it looks like it's almost hopeless, that's a good time to start looking up. I don't know, I thought of this. This whole world is pretty messed up, huh? Pretty discouraging. Borderline hopeless, this whole world. Maybe it's time we start looking up and saying, maybe today my Lord will come for me. Maybe today. So Joseph's down there doing his thing, doing his integrity stuff and his character stuff, his hard work stuff, walking with God stuff. And boom, these guys come busting in. Let's go, Joseph, now! Front and center, let's go! Then I notice, so it was an urgent summons, but I notice he made a respectful entrance. Now there's a little interesting thing. And it's interesting, God puts stuff in the Bible for a reason. And some of it seems pretty mundane. Some of it seems like, yeah, so? But it's there for a reason. Notice what God says. Doesn't say they brought him hastily out of the dungeon and uh, came to Pharaoh. He injects this little information, a little bit of information here about Joseph going to see Pharaoh. Notice what it says. And he what? He shaved himself. How many people would say, what's the big deal about shaving yourself? I do it. Some of you guys never do it. I do it every day. Almost every day. Not on my day off. He shaved himself and changed his raiment. I can hear somebody say, whoop-de-doo. 
What's so special about that? I think there's significance to that. One, God doesn't just put stuff in the Bible for people to say whoop-de-doo. Right? He's got a reason. And I think there's a lesson here for us, is Joseph does not want to be disrespectful to the man that's in authority. Pharaoh may have been a lot of things to Joseph. It may not have been a lot of things to Joseph. But one thing he was, he was in authority. He was the king of Egypt. He, was, he had the delegated governmental authority by God. And that's a role established by God, government. As much as we dislike some forms of it, nevertheless, it's God's idea. And Joseph understands that Pharaoh is a man in authority and he is to be respected. And I don't see, if you look at it carefully, it looks to me, it doesn't look to me like these guys that Pharaoh is requiring that Joseph shave himself and change his raiment. I don't see that, jo that Pharaoh is saying, all right, make sure he's cleaned up before you bring him into my presence. I think Pharaoh's so desperate to find out what this, that what this uh, dreams mean that he don't care what the guy, he never even enters his mind what the guy looks like. But notice what it says, how it's worded. It says, and he, Joseph, shaved himself and changed his raiment. This was Joseph's idea. This was Joseph's motivation. It wasn't a requirement on Pharaoh's part. Now, I did a little research and the historians say that the Egyptians were notoriously clean. That they were very particular about hygiene and appearance. And that they were always in public, they were their best. Is what several historical books that I referenced. And I want to say this, our appearance is important. The world, certain elements of the world, certain elements of Christianity want us to think, well, it doesn't matter what your appearance is. I think it does. I think our appearance communicates a lot about what we are and how we think and what our values and our priorities are. Everybody goes to 2 Samuel 16.7. Anybody know what 2 Samuel 16.7 says? This is where Samuel is anointing one of um, uh, who is David's daddy? Um, Jesse. He's anointing one of Jesse's boys to be the king in replace of Saul. God, uh, God's done with Saul. Samuel said, I'm done. I'm taking the kingdom away from you. And he's going to anoint one of Jesse's boys to be the next king. And he goes down through the fellows there. And man, these guys are strong. They're smart. They're very talented. Some of them are big, big boys. And Samuel's looking at him, and he, and he says, man, uh, who was the, uh, the oldest? My mind's going blank. Eliab, uh, the oldest. He goes, this is the guy. He's big and strong and good looking. He's smart. And then God told Samuel, he said, Samuel, you're mistaken. And what did he say? He says, man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. So this is the way people take that verse to say, well, it doesn't matter what you look like as long as you got a good heart. 
I don't think that's what he's saying at all. In fact, that context of that verse isn't talking about how the guys are dressed at all. It's not talking about their appearance in the least bit. It's talking about their features, their natural abilities. And man's thinking is, boy, if somebody's really smart and they're really strong and, and uh, they're a good administrator, boy, they would be a great, they could really do something for God. And God says, listen, I'm not looking for natural abilities. I'm looking for a clean, pure heart. And I think he's telling us God can use somebody that maybe has very few natural abilities and maybe not the best looking features, but if their heart is pure and their heart is right, God says, I can use that man. I can use that woman. Paul references that in Corinthians when he says, not many noble, not the weak things of the world, and the base things of the world God chooses. So it's not talking about appearance. Joseph is concerned that when he enters Pharaoh's presence, that his appearance is respectful. Now, some guys go to seed here and say, well, you've got to shave yourself if you're going to look right. I don't, I don't buy that. I think, I think guys without beards look better than guys with, with beards, but uh, that's my own bias. And um, just disregard that statement. So I don't think it has reference to whether you have a beard here or not. Joseph probably grew one in the prison. I doubt he had access to razor blades in prison. Tom, do you guys give the prisoners razor blades? They get two. Okay, so at best, Joseph is <laughs> shaving two days a week. <laughs> I don't, uh, what I'm trying to say is this. I think our appearance is important. I think how we dress and present ourselves is important. Joseph, I think, understood that, that he wanted to be respectful and how he appeared was a factor whether he was being respectful or not. When the priest would serve in the tabernacle, they had a very strict dress code. Brother, they didn't go into the tabernacle unless they were wearing the clothes that God instructed them to wear. You didn't just go walking in there in your pajamas into the presence of God. Man, they had, they had uh, vests and they had... Uh, all this elaborate thing they put on, why? Because their appearance entering in to serve God in the tabernacle was a factor, how they addressed, how they presented themselves. Um, Bible talks about modesty. Come on now, help me. It's not a popular thing, even in Christianity anymore, but I think Bible clearly teaches that God's people ought to dress modestly. And we, that, we can have a discussion on what that entails. I think the Bible tells us. We're, we're told, I think, I mean, just take the Bible at face value. We're told that we are to dress and appear in our distinctive genders, to use that term. In other words, I think the Bible's clear. I could take some time, sit down with you, show you the way I understand Scripture. I think it's very simple. But men are to look like men, and ladies are to look like ladies. And in this day and age, that has taken on a tremendous significance. I've been preaching that for 40 years. 
since I started seriously teaching and preaching the Bible. There's to be modesty. There's a distinction between male and female and in our appearance. Even in, uh, even in hair, if you go to Corinthians, how we wear our hair. I don't worry about that too much. Several places in the Bible, and I know you say, you're going off on a tangent here, I know it. But several places in the Bible, it refers to women who had the attire of a harlot. Now, what's the attire of a harlot? It's a certain type of apparel, right? It's a certain way of dressing. And you find numerous times in Scripture, a woman would be dressed in a certain way, and the, the people would say, oh, that's a harlot. By the way she's dressed, they would say, uh, obviously, she's a harlot. In Proverbs 7, you have this simple young man is standing on a street corner at night, and Solomon says, I'm looking out my window, and I see this boy down there, this young man, he's a fool. And he's, uh, he meets this woman in the attire of a harlot. So obviously, there's a certain way of dressing that identifies that person, that woman, as a harlot. And so what I think what I'm trying to say is this, how we present ourselves and how we appear, yes, it is important. Now this is completely off subject and not relative, maybe. I think maybe a little bit, but I think our senators in Washington, D.C. ought to dress respectfully. And it's been in the news a bunch the last couple of years. There are certain senators come in in sweatshirts and T-shirts and shorts and tennis shoes. <laughs> I think that's very disrespectful. And let me bring that home a little bit. I think when preachers get up to declare the eternal Word of God, representing, standing in the stead of Christ and preaching the Word of God, they ought to appear presentable, and respectable. I like when I hear folks, uh, now we don't have a dress, you have to dress a certain way to come to church. That's not what I'm saying. We want folks to come, amen? Now if they're indecent, we'll deal with it, but... We want you to come on. But I like sometimes when people say they'll come visit our church or something, they'll, they'll, I'll be back there and they'll say something like this, boy, I felt like I was in church today. You say people looked respectable and people looked presentable. Our appearance speaks volumes about our competence, about our credibility, about our respect. I remember when I was in Bible college, um, I went to Philadelphia Bible College one year, and then I transferred down to Tennessee Temple. I was down there about a year, half, maybe two years, and I had started, I was working in a bus ministry, and I started doing a little preaching in some of the chapels they had scattered throughout that region. They would have these little chapels on Sunday, and I'd go out and get to preach that. And so I'm doing all this stuff, and one, for whatever reason, I thought, you know, and they had a dress code. You had to wear, you know, polo shirt and clean pants and stuff. Yeah, I mean, just had to be decent, but wasn't anything more than that. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to wear a suit and tie. And so I started that. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, people's treatment of me changed immediately. Yes, sir. You know, and they, and they talked to me more respectfully. Even the teachers... I noticed a difference in how they interacted with me. Not that it was bad before, but it was different. There was more of a respect there. There was more of a, I don't know, that's not the word I want, professionalism. Did anybody know what, know what I'm trying to communicate? 
There was a difference just in the way I dressed. Now, I don't dress to get a certain reaction, but what I'm trying to say is this. How we present ourselves has an effect on other people, and it speaks volumes about my respect for myself, about my respect for the person that I'm interacting with. I'm not saying we wear suits all the time, goodness. But I am saying that Joseph had too much respect for himself and for the authority of Pharaoh to show up like a slob. He, wanted, he said, wait a minute, fellow. Come on, we got to go, we got to go, let's go. He wants you now, pronto. Hey, hey get, let's go. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Lonnie, Lonnie. I need some clothes, hold on. Runs, finds some clean clothes. All right, let's go. And then I got to, let me give you my last thought, super duper quick. The third, third thing I noticed, the dreams are interpreted. Now, no, we know what the dreams are. We went over them. Verse 25 to 31. But one thing I notice is the maturity of Joseph in interpreting these dreams. He's in front of Pharaoh, most powerful man perhaps in the world at this point. He's brought in before him. And... Um, they tell him what the situation is, probably briefed him on the way. And um, that would be a good time to tell Pharaoh how badly he's been treated. Right? This would be a good time to say, hey man, for 11 years I've been in this prison. I never did a thing, I'm honest. He doesn't say a word of that. In fact, I got looking in here, there's no complaints of injustice. There's no complaints and neglect. He doesn't say a word about the butler forgetting him for two years. Doesn't say a word about any of that. No whining. He stands before Pharaoh with dignity and maturity. I've found that whining and complaining never improves the situation. In fact, it just makes it worse. Stop your whining. I don't see Joseph doing any whining, no complaining. It never impresses anybody. Nobody's impressed by these people on TV whining about how terrible they have it. Doesn't earn respect. Doesn't improve a thing. So the maturity of Joseph. Then I notice the humility of Joseph. Look in verse 16. He says, it is not in me. Joseph never viewed his life as being about himself. All he did was allow God to use him in whatever way God saw fit. It wasn't about Joseph. It wasn't about him having position or claim, fame or accolades or any of that. It's just, it's not about me. It's not in me. None of this is me. It's God did all of it. All he did was allow God to use him to help others. And really, that's what the Christian life is. The Christian life isn't about how great you and I are. It's about God choosing to use us however he sees fit. If he wants to use one person in some spectacular way, it's God doing that. He wants to use another person, maybe behind the scenes a little bit, not as, as public. Hey, that's God's choice. It's not about us. Are you with me? And then last of all, I notice the focus of Joseph. And this is where I really wanted to get to, and I'll end with this. Look at verse 16. It's not, it is not in me. What's the next word? God shall give Pharaoh. Look at verse number 25. Joseph said unto Pharaoh, the dream of Pharaoh is one. God 
has showed Pharaoh what he's about to do. Come down to verse 28, uh, middle of the verse, what God is about to do. Look at verse 32. For the dream was doubled Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. God, 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 God. Joseph was all focused on God. And I think it's fascinating. He's standing in front of the most powerful pagan worshiper in the world. They worship all kinds of gods. They worship cats of all things. The sun. And Joseph stands there with dignity, clean-shaven, neat, and he stands and says, God Almighty is the one that's working in your life. God Almighty is the one that's in control of the weather. God Almighty is the one that meets needs and knows the future. His focus is on God. He's unashamedly standing up and speaking in the face of human power of the power of God. The power of God. I think this world needs some Christians stand up and say, hey, God is able. God is on his throne. God is king of kings. Joseph unashamedly spoke of his Lord. Everyone in the highest court of Egypt was told of the power and the plan of God. Without fear, without intimidation, he declared the power of his God in the most powerful man's court. Now this is what I find interesting, and I'll stop. Verse 38, we'll look at this later. Pharaoh said unto his servants, can we find one? As this is a man in whom the spirit of... Ah, Pharaoh said that. Look at verse 39. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, for as much as God has showed thee this. Joseph, or Pharaoh was so impacted by Joseph's confidence, his boldness, his lack of timidness, that he says, there's something to this guy. This God he's talking about is real. And he doesn't reference Ra, the sun god. He doesn't reference um, Fluffy, the kitty god. He says, God, God. Joseph had an impact upon this man, had an influence. Let's pray. Father, went long. I pray you'd uh, take these thoughts about Joseph and use them to help us just be yielded to you. And do right and work hard and tell the truth and walk with you. Lord, when the opportunity comes, help us to speak up for you unashamedly. And Lord, I pray you'd use us to be salt in this old earth. And it just looks overwhelming out there. It just seems this world's so powerful. But Lord, help us not be ashamed and rely on your power. Heads bowed, eyes closed. How many would say, preacher... I need to keep my walk with God strong, just like Joseph. Sure, sure, who wouldn't say that? Say, preacher, I just want my integrity. I want to be a man or woman of integrity and do right, whether I get attention or not, whether it's not about me at all, it's just about the Lord, me doing right and, and, uh, and uh, working hard and being what He wants me to be. How about it? Amen? We want it to be about the Lord. And that's what this whole world needs. Father, bless our invitation. And uh, I ask in Jesus' name, amen.